Some of the graduate students and faculty members in the philosophy department here at the University of Toronto belong to a pretty exclusive club. We spend hours and hours thinking about our club. It's the topic of countless different email chains and Facebook threads, and it's the main topic of conversation on the elevator and at the water cooler. Aside from our research, this club is probably the number one thing we spend time thinking about. This club is fantasy football. If you don't know about fantasy sports, it's basically like pretending you're the manager of an all-star team of players in that sport. You make a roster of players from different teams, and you compete against others who have rosters with a different set of players. We play fantasy football, but there's also fantasy baseball, fantasy basketball, fantasy hockey, even fantasy cross-country skiing. That's Eric's thing. Fantasy football is terribly addicting, and it's incredibly fun. The problem, however, is that it might also be morally wrong. In fact, participating in football in any way, promoting it, attending games, even just watching it on TV, might be morally wrong. Naturally, since a bunch of us are philosophers and a few of us are ethicists, a lot of our conversations about fantasy football revolve around this question of whether or not what we're doing is morally wrong. Here's an example. Back in August, when we were first picking players for our teams, someone raised the question of whether or not any of us could field a decent team without drafting any players who had been arrested or accused of some sort of violent offense off the field. I'm pretty sure only one of us managed to do it, and it wasn't easy. But it isn't just about criminality, though that's definitely part of it. There's been a lot of news coverage lately about the traumatic brain injuries that NFL players have been found to have. It's called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, and it's a huge problem. This past July, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a study reporting that of 111 brains from deceased NFL players that had been studied, fully 110 had CTE. That's 99%. The central question for me, then, is, am I doing something morally wrong by watching football? Are we all acting wrongly by participating in this fantasy football league? Is football irredeemably bad? Today's episode is a two-parter. In the first half, we're going to dive deeper into the question of whether or not football is morally wrong. And in the second half, we're going to talk about baseball, how it dovetails with some philosophical ideas, its unique aesthetics, and whether or not failure is so bad after all. In this episode, we might throw you a few curveballs, but we promise not to move the goalposts. From the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto, this is Open Questions, a podcast about ethics. I'm Eric Matheson. And I'm Jeremy Davis. Yeah, I'm Dr. Pam Sailors. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri. Pamela has written quite a bit on the ethics and philosophy of sport. And a few years back, she wrote a paper where she argued that football was, as she put it, morally problematic. I think I was a little less uh, pessimistic about football, uh, a little less condemning when I wrote the paper than I am now, actually. Um, And so now I think I would say that, that football is morally wrong. And before you start thinking, hey, what do philosophers know about football? It's easy to criticize football from the ivory tower. Consider that Pamela was a pretty serious football fan herself. I grew up in Georgia and went to school at the University of Georgia, and they have a little football program. And I'm, I'm, I have a three by five foot Georgia Bulldogs flag that I used to fly on every Saturday game day. Um, this is a hard, hard position for me. Uh, I struggle now with uh, watching football and and following the game, and you know, I, I it's a hard thing. 
Pamela thinks there are three important reasons why football is morally wrong. One is that football has what I call the culture of criminality. Uh, it, it emphasizes aggression and violence, and women only appear in supporting roles as cheerleaders and, and wives and girlfriends. And so the result is this sort of perfect enactment of masculinity that is not confined to the playing field. Uh, Messner, Mike Messner has argued that success in aggressive sports requires a loss of empathy and objectification of others. And that uh, sort of bleeds literally sometimes off the field. The problem here relates to the worry we had when crafting our fantasy football teams. A lot of professional football players are violent in their personal lives, and it's hard to avoid the conclusion that the culture and mentality of football encourages or enables that. The argument, then, is that we shouldn't support institutions or activities that tend to give rise to these types of harms. Pamela's second reason is most familiar to those who watch college football or college sports in general. Though it is also applicable to professional football, Pamela calls it the plantation problem. We see huge profits for universities that are built on the backs of of unpaid players. Uh, Professional players are paid, and we might think that they're paid a lot, but not nearly proportionate to the owner's profits. The idea here, roughly, is that we shouldn't tolerate systems that have the structure of creating massive profits for others while they themselves endure considerable physical suffering, injuries, and so on. This brings us to the third problem, which is probably the most important of the three. Football causes brain damage. I mean, that's kind of the bottom line of it. Um, the extent of it is becoming more and more obvious. Uh, that I mean, this is the chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. You've probably heard of CTE. It's been in the news a lot over the past few years. Some prominent NFL players have retired over fears that they would eventually end up with CTE if they continued playing. One version of the argument is pretty plain to see. Football causes brain damage, so we shouldn't support it. But some people might object and say, these players are free to choose to suffer brain damage if they want. No one is forcing them to play football. If it's their choice, then we don't do anything wrong by watching and supporting them. But as Pamela points out, this isn't quite right, at least in most cases. Uh, In fact, by the time kids get to the age where we would grant them that kind of autonomy, they've already been playing for so long that the damage has been done. The problem then is that professional football depends in large part on players starting to play when they're young. But suppose we limited it so that people could only play football, at least the full contact type of football that is played in the NFL, once they're adults. Even then, Pamela says, there would still be problems. To see this, we have to consider an argument from the philosopher John Stuart Mill. Mill has what's been called the harm principle, where he says adults have to be, competent adults have to be allowed to choose their own risk as long as they're not hurting anybody else. And uh, so people say, oh, we should allow people to choose. And I think there are two responses here. One is Mill makes an exception for Uh, the harm principle and says, but we can't allow people to choose to sell themselves into slavery because that would be giving up any future choices that they could make, any future freedom. And we can't allow that for that reason. And so really what's happening here, I think, is people, these football players are giving up their chance to make choices in the future. 
And so they are, in effect, kind of selling themselves into slavery by, by voluntarily giving up their, their future autonomy. So Pamela's argument here is that Mill's harm principle, which seems to allow people to make choices like playing dangerous sports, might actually rule these choices out. But she also thinks the harm principle is inadequate here. That harm principle doesn't work anyway because um, you have to consider the harm to everybody who's affected by this. And when we start to read the heartbreaking stories of NFL wives who are taking care of their husbands who played football for X number of years and now can't even dress themselves, don't even know who their wives are, um, I, I mean, I think that has to be taken into account, too. And so there is harm to others. Now, you might be thinking, fair enough. We just need to change football so that it doesn't have these massive hits that cause CTE. Here's how Pamela responds to that. There's a philosopher named Nicholas Dixon who does really fine work. And he wrote a paper 20 years ago, I guess, on boxing and argued that boxing, the problem with boxing is that it involves hitting people in the head. And that causes the same kind of damage we're talking about here. And so Nick said, well, look, we can change this if we just reform boxing and we reform it in order uh, by eliminating blows to the head. But it wouldn't really be boxing then. And I think sort of the same thing is true of of football. Now, you know, I, I don't want to rule this the rule it out that maybe there's some way to reform it. That's maybe there's some way you could come up with changes that would eliminate the the problems, but uh, and, and if you could, great, I'm, I'm all for it. But in the end, I think that people would say that's not really football. It's not just concussions that we have to worry about. It's these sub-concussive hits that football players are taking on every single play. I don't know how you eliminate those without it not being football anymore. I mean, we, if we could do flag football, I, I don't think that would please the people who really like football. The question we started with, however, was one about complicity. Are we, the fans, those of us who play fantasy football, are we complicit in these wrongs? I'm growing more and more confident, I guess, in this, that I think that we are complicit. Uh, I think that it's wrong uh, for us to, to watch it. I don't think it's, I, there, I don't think we, we have clean hands if we can say, oh, well, yeah, I know it's a really bad game and I would never let my kid play, but I'm, I enjoy watching it. There's, there's something odd there. I mean, once you know what's going on, once you know the damage that these men and boys uh, are doing to their brains, uh, there's something wrong about it. I, I, and I think there are some similarities also to arguments against supporting companies that act immorally. And so, you know, we, we're always faced with calls to boycott one company or corporation or another because of something that they've done that we think is wrong. And we say, oh, well, this is collusion. You know, if you're supporting a company, you're you're supporting their practices, at least indirectly, because they couldn't continue to operate without customers. So if Pamela's argument is right, those of us in our departmental fantasy football league might be complicit, if only partly, in the wrongs the NFL and its owners are committing. As football shows, there are ethical questions raised by sports. The morality of watching football is just one of them, of course. There's also the issue of doping, worries about exploiting college athletes, and more. But sports can also cause more general philosophical reflection, and at least according to our next guest, one sport causes its reflection more than others. Hi, I'm Mark Kingwell, professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto. Mark's new book is called Fail Better, Why Baseball Matters. 
It's a collection of essays, both personal and philosophical, on baseball. I've been a baseball fan my whole life, and uh, I wanted to think about baseball in a way that brought together fandom and philosophy. And so uh, it's an idiosyncratic book, I guess, because uh, it has elements of autobiography and standard stories of father-son bonding, things like that, uh, but, but fairly long discourses into rule-following, aesthetics, uh, colonialism, and politics thereof. Uh, so I, I, I guess it's, it's the baseball book that I would have wanted to read when I was a younger fan. The title Fail Better comes from Samuel Beckett's short story, Worst Word Ho, in which a character delivers these lines. All of old, nothing else ever, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. A few of the essays in Marx's Fail Better deal with the concept of failure. I had, I had given a talk to a group of drama students, actually, about failure and why I thought it was so interesting and so important. And, and trying to dis distinguish failure in Beckett's sense, you know, f try again, fail again, fail better, from just, uh, I don't know, you learn from your mistakes. I think it's, it's got to be deeper than that. And in, in the longer text uh, from Worstward Ho, you get a real sense of this from the way, he, you know, typically he's using language, weaving this kind of almost oneric uh, spell about the very idea of doing anything at all. Uh, and so I wanted to expand on that. The, the, the cliche, of course, in baseball is you can fail seven times out of 10 or six times out of 10 and you'll still be in the, in the Hall of Fame as a hitter. Mm. Uh, you know, there, there are so few perfect games in the history of the, the, the sport that you can count them on a few hands. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's a game that teaches you about how difficult things are. And that's what I really want. It's like, not just like learn from your mistakes, but appreciate how difficult it is to do anything at all. And that's what, I mean, that's part of why I love watching baseball games. You know, you watch a close game, especially when you really care about the team and how hard it is to get a man on base, you know, how hard it is to move him over to second, how hard it is to, to get to third or home. And, uh, and then suddenly there are these things like home runs that blow everything out of the water. So uh, it just seemed a really interesting and fertile uh, theme to explore within my, at that time, fairly amorphous thoughts about baseball. The idea that baseball involves so much failure comes from looking at the batters. Of course, other positions have much higher rates of success. For example, pitchers throw far more strikes than balls, and the other field positions succeed most of the time. But even their failures are captured in a unique way in baseball. And the whole idea of, of the error is fascinating itself because I write about this in the book too. Uh, you know, you could you record unforced errors in tennis, for example, but uh, no player, except in baseball, has a, a stat line that chases him or her all through career number of errors. And you know, sometimes you make two errors on the same play. I've, it just just happened. A guy um, missed a catch and then booted the ball. Two errors. Uh, you know, and and you can win a Gold Glove with mm, maybe seven or eight errors in a season, right? I mean, that's insanely good. <laughs> and, and so the, the, the pervasiveness of the error and the very idea of it, which is to assign responsibility. So somebody makes an error, and that means that it's not a hit, for example. 
And but the guy's still on base, of course. Uh, so that judging, that kind of weighing up of consequence, is fascinating too. You know, mm-hmm. who messed up, to what cost, uh, and then things that are categorically bracketed, like wild pitches and pass balls, are not errors. Uh, partly because there's too many of them, right? There's, you know, the the battery is constantly dealing with with the ball. Uh, I think it's just really amazing that you have this thing that uh, records and trails after you all the things that that you messed up. Apart from the error statistic, Mark says that baseball is particularly prone to capturing what we might call epic fails. Players tripping over themselves, running to first base, missing fly balls a 12-year-old would be expected to catch, and players making wild throws they can usually make with perfect precision. These mistakes are useful because they remind us just how hard excellence is to achieve. Baseball is a unique sport in other ways. It's interesting. I mean, it's, it's a team sport, even though it's a, it's a curious team sport where, as has been mentioned many times, uh, the, the, the team on defense controls the ball. There's a confrontation between two players plus the catcher uh, that, that is the center of the action. That's weird when you've got, you know, nine men on a side. Uh, it's a very odd sport. According to Mark, baseball is abstract in a way other games aren't which partly explains why it invites philosophical reflection. Well, again, this is, this is much uh, discussed, but uh, of all the major sports, um, it's not territorial. So there's no end-to-end action. Hockey, football, soccer, rugby, they all have a, a rectangular or more or less rectangular field of play where the goal is at either end. And, you know, how you score the goal varies. You know, is it, is it a, a uh, you know the puck is in the net or um, the rug ball is on the ground or touchdown or whatever. Um, but baseball is not like that. It's, it, its field is this peculiar diamond plus outfield, uh, this, this weird 90-degree thing from home plate that extends out theoretically into infinity. It's only bound by the fence, and the fences themselves differ from park to park, which, is, again, I don't think there's any other sport that's like that. Uh, and to score, you go around in this funny little square, uh, home to home. And, you know, people wax poetic about this. Uh, Bart Giamatti's beautiful about this in, in Take Time for Paradise, Donald Hall, in his baseball poetry. Uh, you know, you can, you can figure it as a, a sort of romantic narrative, a quest. Uh, I just think it's, it's really interesting and strange that... that the way you score is not by advancing on territory or acquiring property, but by marking. You know, it's it's almost like the most abstract game you could imagine made into a concrete game. There are elements of baseball that make it abstract, but then there are features that baseball writers think make it the best sport. Mark points to a few of these features. What, what that means is one of the most beautiful things in baseball is the walk-off, mm. right? The walk-off win, walk-off home run especially, uh, is is just the most dramatic and amazing thing ever. It's 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 better than anything else in in sports because even if you score a touchdown with five seconds left, there's still five seconds left. I mean, I suppose you could score a, a field goal or a touchdown with no time on the clock, but but the home run in baseball, the walk off home run, actually ends the game. It's a performative, you know. It is the thing that ends the game. He agrees with John Rawls, the 20th century's most famous political philosopher, that baseball is great because it's so egalitarian. I think more than pretty much any other 
of the major sports, you get such a variety of bodies. Mm. You know, you get Aaron Judge, who's six eight or something. You get uh, uh, Jose Altuve, who's not even six feet and five nine or five eight. Uh, you know, if you sit them next to each other, you think, how can they both be playing the same sport at the highest level? Mm-hmm. Uh, both candidates for MVP or Rookie of the Year in, in Judge's case. We asked Mark what he would change about baseball if he could, but he didn't have many suggestions. It is, I mean, it, it is as close to a, a perfect game, I think, as, as we are likely to come. Here are a few of his ideas for improving baseball. I would rather see, and they've, they've done this too, uh, a little bit of crackdown on pitchers who take too long between pitches. Uh, there are some some pitchers who make a thing about, you know, really pushing the envelope uh, between pitches. Uh, you know, get to work. Just, you know, throw the pitch. Uh, I think I would like to see that maybe they, I hate to say this, but there have been so many home runs this season especially. Maybe we need to give the pitcher another advantage. You know, there have been over the years many things that were done to to try to even out that confrontation. Uh, the mound has been raised, for example. Um, maybe it's time to, to raise the mound again. Would that? I'm not sure that would work. Uh, I don't mind home runs, but I, you know, I, I do feel a bit like um, Kevin Costner and Bull Durham. You know, they're 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 not democratic. <laughs> they're, they're fascistic. Right. <laughs> you know, they don't involve the rest of the team. Uh, and I, you know, the, the ad says chicks dig the long ball. I don't know about that. I, I, I think, uh, fewer home runs would probably be better. I would like to, I would love to see actually speaking of changes, major league baseball expand into the Caribbean, right? I mean, why isn't there a team in Puerto Rico, for example, or, you know, in the Dominican, mm-hmm. uh, I, I mean, anyway, uh, or even Japan, like you could make that work. One debate that comes up occasionally is whether baseball should get rid of the home plate umpire. Mark is against this idea. That feels like a kind of cyborg thing. It's probably coming. Mm-hmm. Five years, ten years. Uh, I still, I still like the fact that there's a guy behind the plate who's making the judgment, even if, even if I see on the television that he's wrong. Mm-hmm. I still like that it's there. In fact, Mark thinks that the umpire is entitled to give preference to better pitchers. Is it wrong that a veteran pitcher, I mean, take David Price or Justin Verlander, they tend to get a little more consideration on the corners. I kind of like that. I mean, I think they've earned it. Mm. And I know that's that's not fair in a strict sense. But I think if, if Justin Verlander throws two inches outside the zone, and I call it a strike, I think he's earned it. I pointed out that this isn't a very egalitarian view, and that one might think the opposite view, where the umps are more lenient to the worst pitchers to even out the results, that that would be more justified. I guess I'm really an elitist at heart. (laughs) (laughs) Any baseball fan knows that the beauty of baseball isn't only in the rules or features of how individual games are played. The season itself captures a feeling in a way other sports don't. I think I I quote uh, Tom Cheek in the book, who, uh, late Tom Cheek, who was a radio commentator, uh, for years covering the Blue Jays. And, and he said this, exactly this thing, right? It's the summer game. It's the game you can always have on. Uh, it can just be on in the background, you know? I remember when I first moved to, to uh, uh, I actually hadn't moved here permanently, but I first came to Toronto in this 77, 78, when the Jays just got started. My uncle was a big baseball fan, and he would just put the game on the radio and we'd be like painting the fence or cleaning the, the pool or, you know, whatever, working in the garage. And it's just there. 
you know, it's May to October. It is the summer. It's because there's no clock. It's time out of time. You know, this sabbatical feeling that it has. And that, that I, I, I've quoted this more than once. Um, Barchamati, uh, towards the end of Take Time for Paradise, he talks about how uh, the, the game is designed to break your heart. You know, it starts in the spring, moves through those long, long days of summer when the, the sun seems like it's never going to set. And then you hit September and October and the days start closing in and the weather gets colder and everything's coming to an end. And, you know, he wrote those words when he, I think, knew he was dying. Uh, it's very poignant because it, it sort of captures all of the, that, that feeling about summer as that this time where you can relax and then the fall comes, especially for academics like us, you know, back to school, back to work. Uh, but everybody feels that way. Mm -hmm. You know, people talk about it all the time. It's like this back to school feeling, even when they haven't been to school in years. Uh, so yeah, I think baseball really, really captures that within its season and no other sport does that. Uh, football, it's a fall game, fall, winter, hockey goes on way too long, um, basketball now, likewise, uh, it's, it's the summer game. It's the game of, of those long days. And of course there are the personal memories. Well, it's funny because the first, um, answer that comes to mind is not something that happened inside a stadium. Uh, I, I write about this in my book. I, my father and I went to a Winnipeg Whips game and we were on our way. We were late and a foul ball came over the fence and he sprinted down the street to get the ball. And I'd never seen him move that fast. And I can still, I still have a visual, his, his windbreaker kind of fl flying out behind him and, you know, um, just wanting to get that ball for me. And uh, so in some ways that's my favorite baseball memory. Open Questions is a production of the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto. The music is written and performed by our all-star player, Marku Wainman. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at OQ Show and send us your thoughts on sports to openquestionsshow at gmail.com. Mark Kingwell's book on baseball is called Fail Better, Why Baseball Matters. We'll be back next week.